This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to the Red Journal Lung Science Podcast. My name is Sunad Rangarajan, and I am an assistant professor at University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. With me to discuss how the adenine nucleotide translocase, ANT1, influences epithelial cell senescence in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is Dr. Corinne Clement, who is an assistant professor from University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Dr. Clement's research broadly focuses on epithelial cell biology in the pathogenesis of tissue remodeling in chronic lung diseases. She has currently secured independent NIH funding to study the role of adenine nucleotide translocase in mitochondrial dysfunction associated senescence in COPD. Dr. Clement, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me today. All right, let us jump right in. Would you please explain the rationale for your study and why the questions you asked are important in IPF? So we know that alveolar type 2 epithelial cells are essential for the proper repair of the alveolar epithelium after injury, and that these cells are dysregulated in pulmonary fibrosis. We also know that cellular senescence of these type 2 cells and that mitochondrial dysfunction, each separately, have been implicated in the pathogenesis of IPF. However, really the mitochondrial mechanisms that promote senescence in these type two cells and in IPF in general remain unclear. And so our study sought to answer this question in linking the mitochondrial mechanisms with senescence. Yeah, in fact, uh, the NIH has also come up uh, with a NOSI for uh, studying mitochondria. So I think it's a it's a hot area. Would you please describe your study's main findings? Absolutely. So our study demonstrates that mitochondrial dysfunction, in our case driven by the loss of adenine nucleotide translocase 1, or ANT1, promoted cellular senescence in type 2 cells and worsened pulmonary fibrosis in the bleomycin model. ANT1 is an abundant ATP-ADP transporter that's found at the inner mitochondrial membrane, and it regulates mitochondrial metabolism and also signaling within the cells. And we showed that in AT2 cells from patients with IPF that there's reduced expression of ANT1. This loss of ANT1 in epithelial cells resulted in altered mitochondrial respiration, so a reduction in oxidative phosphorylation, and also alterations in the NAD plus NADH balance within the cells. So really the cellular energetics were perturbed. The senescence with this loss of ANT1, we saw a senescence phenotype that was induced and further went on to show that in primary cells that this loss of ANT1 reduced the capacity of these type 2 cells to form 3D alveolar organoids, which is really interesting to us because it's now showing that this mitochondrial defect is implicated in the the overall kind of stem cell reparative function that these type 2 cells normally have. And we know that 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 Type, these type 2 cells are abnormal in IPF, and this could be one of, the, one of the keys as to why. And so this study really shows new insights in how 
anti-mediated mitochondrial dysfunction is really a key driver in senescence in these type two cells and potentially a therapeutic target for pulmonary fibrosis. That's exciting. But I'm curious about this phenotype where uh, the ATP is altered. Now we and others have shown that IPF lungs in, in fact have lower ATP levels. Given that ANT1 exports ATP from the mitochondria and that you know the, you've shown that the IPF lungs have lower ANT1, are you surprised by how knockout or knockdown of ANT1 in your experiments led to an actual increase in cellular ATP levels? What are your thoughts on this phenotype? Yeah, it's a really interesting phenotype. And I think I think the overall arching concept, which you raised nicely, is that that conservation of cellular energy states is really important and that can be perturbed in disease states. When ANT levels decline, the idea is, or that they're functioning less, the idea is that less ATP would be transported out of the mitochondria after it's produced through oxidative phosphorylation in the electron transport chain. And so the, the cell likely has to turn towards other ATP production mechanisms. So it's possible that loss of ANT results in shifts towards glycolysis or even fatty acid oxidation for their ATP production. It's also possible that there could be compensation from other ANT isoforms, so ANT2 or ANT3, for example. And then it's also notable that the ANT2 isoform in particular actually has been reported to bidirectionally transport ATP that it can shuttle ATP in reverse into mitochondria, which would support anaerobic glycolysis. So it's, it's very likely that the cells are really trying to maintain ATP despite the loss of ANT1 by boosting glycolysis or boosting other mechanisms to, to really maintain those key ATP levels. That's fascinating. What do you think are the next studies to understand ANT1 biology in this setting? So I think, you know, one key limitation of our study is, is that our mouse model was a global ANT1 knockout. So I think that raises the question of what cell types are most important. A lot of the work that we did ex vivo, obviously, was with the type 2 cells. And so we do see the phenotype in specific cell types, but we now have a floxed mouse, which will allow us to do cell-specific knockout of ANT1, where we can really dissect which cell types are driving different aspects of the phenotype. For example, whether it's the type 2 cells or fibroblasts, for example. We also have some interesting data where loss of ANT1 in macrophages drastically impacts their immune function and so raises new questions about susceptibility to infection, even in patients with you know, pulmonary fibrosis. And so I think there are a lot of different avenues of just understanding how these proteins are functioning in the lung and leading to mitochondrial dysfunction. I think the other key thing that we're really interested in understanding and that's important is to understand the transcriptional regulators of ANT1 expression and how its expression differs between different disease settings. So what are the key things that are driving it to be reduced in a type two cell within a pulmonary fibrosis lung versus other disease states? That's great. Great that you have the flux mouse ready. Coming to the big question, the overall uh, overarching thing, do you see a translation potential that could impact patients with these studies? Now, if so, how would you address concerns that altering basic mitochondrial biology, such as by modulation of ANT1, could potentially have widespread effects in all cell types? 
Yeah, so I think many studies have shown that optimizing and enhancing mitochondrial function can lead to improved cellular function and lifespan within organisms, and I think at the cellular level as well. And modulating ANTs could be one of these. I think it's going to be isoform specific as well. There are studies out there that show if you overexpress ANT1, that you actually lead towards increased apoptosis in cells. So it may not be, it may be just boosting its function, not necessarily overexpressing the protein itself. The different isoforms, again, have variable function. So we need to better understand which one may be the right one to target. So I think interventions that either enhance ANT function or quantity, or even therapies such as direct mitochondrial transfer, where it's not just the protein that you're augmenting, you're transferring the entire mitochondria and its functions in general could be potential treatments. As with any therapeutic, I think any the more cell-specific and targeted we can make it is ideal to really avoid those off-target effects. I think there's always the risk of, you know, do we of cancer transformation or things like that. So I think we have to be pretty careful about how we target these therapies. And Dr. Clement, before we wrap up this episode, I want to touch upon one more thing. You are the Associate Director and Assistant Dean of the Medical Scientist Training Program, as well as an Associate Director of the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Program at UPMC. Could you comment on some of the hurdles the current generation of budding basic science researchers are facing to succeed in the field? Now, I'm asking this as it appears that there is an increasing trend for new trainees to choose a career in clinical research and or medical education as opposed to, you know, the mainstream basic science. Yeah, I think we're at a really critical time in science with some phenomenal discoveries being made, which makes it really exciting. I think, you know, we need to have a strong pipeline of physician scientists that can do, you know, mechanistic bench science work to then collaborate with our clinical scientists and really make the science translational and to ensure that we have a strong workforce going forward. So how do we retain young scientists? I believe it's really, it's through strong mentorship and support programs that will give them the skills that they need to succeed and really to build resiliency. Because I think we all know that the physician scientist track is challenging. There are ups and downs, and sometimes we feel like there are more downs. But I think with that training, building skills for success and resiliency, they can sort of navigate that. And I think this includes programs that range from teaching skills in grant writing, networking, how do you run a laboratory team, and, and even time management. I talk a lot with students and fellows about the idea that your laboratory team and your scientific group really is a small business. And what does that mean? I, many of us haven't gone to business school, but we, we really then get thrown into this idea of, of running a small business, having a product, having to you know manage finances and things. And so I think all of those are important skills that will help them to navigate those waters. I think financial support through early career grant programs both at the foundations level as well as at the NIH are extremely important and helpful in providing young scientists protected time to grow their science and their teams. You know, I think trying to do science by yourself and without any support is exhausting. It leads to burnout and I think it leads to leak in our scientific pipeline. So as much as we can, you know, give young scientists the skills and networking that they need and then have supportive mechanisms 
you know, as they're transitioning from that K to R, but even first R to second R, you know, I think all those are really important transitions in keeping that pipeline and keeping scientists excited about what they're doing. Great. Dr. Simon, it was wonderful having you talk about your research and your experiences and views as a mentor. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to all our uh, listeners for joining us today. This episode of the Lung Science Podcast was, as always, brought to you by the American Journal of Respiratory Cell and Molecular Biology. If you would like to listen to more episodes of this podcast, please visit atsjournals.org or subscribe to the Lung Science Podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or Google Play. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.